Baruch Hashem. Such a great spirit of joy and expectation and in the house today, amongst all the people today. Such a blessing time. It sounds a little self-serving, but I just want to say just what, how special it is to be at Sar Shalom. And such a, such a wonderful, wonderful group of people. And uh, people who are really serious about their faith and, and understand it in a very unique, unique way. So just a blessing for everybody to be here. I'm blessed to be here. I'm glad that you're here with me. Baruch Hashem. The blessing of the Torah as we get into our Torah topic today, which Bezrat Hashem will center around the Omer with a few random thoughts by Rabbi Griffin. Baruch Hashem. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of your Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Amen. I want to read to you a short passage uh, to begin with from uh, one of the, the Haftarah that's selected for this time of year from the book of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. It says, you will say on that day, say that day. That day. You will say on that day, I thank you, Hashem, for you were angry with me, but you removed your wrath and comforted me. Behold, God is my salvation. I shall trust and not fear, for God is my might and my praise, Adonai, and he was a salvation for me. If you perform Havdalah as you should on Saturday night, you're familiar with that verse, right? You, and then it continues. You can draw water with joy from the springs of Yeshua. Right? We talked yesterday about the water drawing ceremony. They went to the pool of Siloam and they drew out the water, the living water. And here, that, that water that is called out, that, that is drawn out is referred to as the spring of Yeshua. So with joy, you will draw water from the spring of Yeshua. And you will say on that day, give thanks to Adonai, declare his name, make his acts known among the peoples. Do what? Make his acts known among the peoples. What peoples? That's peoples in general. Make his acts known among the peoples. Remind one another, for his name is powerful. Make music for Adonai. We always come back to music. Make music for Adonai, for he has established grandeur. Make this known throughout the world. What? Make this known throughout the world. What did Mashiach tell us? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them about the commands of God. Right? It's not enough. It is not enough just to know the Messiah. Right? In the same way as it's not enough to know that Interstate 45 takes you to Houston. What if, you never tra what if you knew that, but you never got on Interstate 45? Would you ever make it to Houston? Houston, we have a problem. 
You can know the way, you can know the truth, and you can know the life that takes you to the Father, but if you never follow that way, and never follow that truth, and never follow that life, you'll never go to the Father. You say, Rabbi, you're trying to say you're saved by your works? No, I'm saying, you're, you, I'm saying that, that, that Yeshua is standing at the way, and he's saying, I'm the way, you've got to get in the way. You've got to get out of the way so that you can get in the way, actually. Right? So anyway, um, and you will say on the day, that's, <laughs> give thanks to Adonai, declare his name, make his acts known among the peoples, remind one another for his name is powerful, make music for Adonai for his established grandeur, make known throughout, make this known throughout the world, exult and sing for joy, O inhabitation of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel has done greatly among you. You have to understand that in, in, in Jewish, in Judaism, going through a ceremony uh, such, as, such as Pesach, uh, I could also say uh, a ceremony such as the ceremonial washing of the hands or the ceremonial, you, should, you, you could say, wrapping of tefillin or any other host of ceremonies. When we don seat seat in the morning, we say a bracha, we kiss our seat seat. You know, it'd be, if, if you do this daily and you have done it for years, it becomes kind of second nature. You're kind of, you're waking up, you're getting kind of groggy, you're enjoying a cup of coffee and you're getting dressed, you put on, you know, Baruch HaTadonai, Lehenem HaKalam, Asherah Kichanabi, and stuff, it's, you know, a mitzvah tzizit, you put on your shirt. It becomes like habit, which you can say, well, isn't that kind of rote? Say, yes and no. Wouldn't you, don't you want your habits to be godly habits? Amen. Right, you know, sometimes when you're driving and you're going on a familiar path, but you're supposed to turn right, right? Uh, you normally go straight, but you're supposed to turn right. You ever been in the instance where you keep going straight because why? You're on autopilot, right? And your, your wife, she says, you didn't turn. And so you're supposed to tell me before the turn, not after the turn. But how, how would you like to be on autopilot with God? Not that you want to remain, no, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but if you're going to be on autopilot, don't be on autopilot for evil, be on autopilot for good. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, the, the, the commandments uh, become habitual, but nothing in Judaism is simply form. Nothing is simply uh, a, a, a ceremony. In Judaism, everything has a very spiritual purpose. What's my point? What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that going through these, these last seven days of davening, of keeping the, the Seder and, and the, the first Seder, and, and, and prayerfully you did the second Seder, but if you didn't, then next year that should be a goal for you. Uh, not eating matzah, being scrupulous about your, excuse me, not eating hummets, being scrupulous in, that your house is free of hummets, and even questioning those things that you think are okay, but you're still questioning them anyway, right? Uh, my daughter was asking me last night, she's like, you know, so this particular product we had, the vinegar was probably okay, but it was like a half empty bottle. Um, she said, so why do we throw it away? And I said, well, I mean, it's, it's already been open. And I don't know, maybe something I got into it. I just don't know. I just don't know that I don't know, so I threw it away. Right? It's okay. It's $2. I can go get a $2 thing tomorrow. Right? So, <clears throat> anyway, 
The point being is that that process is not just ceremonial, but we have to understand that at this very moment, the reason that the, that the Kedusha was so high in, in here this morning is because everyone is standing here purified. Everyone is standing here washed. You know, it says the apostle Shaul wrote to his congregation in, the, in Corinth, and he told them that all of Israel was mikvah in the Red Sea. And of course, the question happens, wait a minute, they went across on, the scripture says, went across on dry ground. So how can you go across on dry ground and that be counted as a mikvah? You have to get in the water, right? But they didn't get in the water. In fact, there was walls of water. And the sages say that when the babies would start to cry and get scared, that Hashem would cause pomegranates to grow out and apples to grow out from the sides of the water. And they would reach up and grab a pomegranate and feed it to their baby. Pomegranates from water. Why? Because pomegranate represents Torah and the water represents Torah. So from fruit comes good fruit. Right? This is why Yeshua said, if you are in me, you will bear good fruit. If you're in the water, then you're going to grow a pomegranate. <laughs> so anyway. So <clears throat> this, this is why you need the oral Torah in your life. Because if you don't have... See, here's the thing, by the way. No one, uh, no one is sola scriptura. No one is. There's not a person on the planet who's word of God only. Not one. There's not one synagogue out there. There's not one church out there. There's not one sacred name group out there. There's not one Hebrew roots group out, out there. If you don't know what I mean by those last two, then that's good. Just, for, don't, even, just don't, even, don't even investigate it. <clears throat> but there's, not, there's no one, because you can't be. You just, it's absolutely impossible to be word of God only. If you're somebody who says, I only follow the word of God, you're going, to end it, you're going to hit a brick wall real quick. For instance, how do you keep the Sabbath? It says to keep the Sabbath. It doesn't tell you how to keep it. But anyway, going back to the Apostle Shaul's letter, he says we were mikvahed. And so you think, how's the mikvahed? Why, why does the Apostle say that? And the reason he says that is because he knows the oral tradition, the oral Torah. He knows that when God said move forward to Israel, that was before the water had parted. So Israel was commanded to walk into the sea before the sea parted. In the same way in which the, the priests or the Levites who were holding the ark were commanded to walk into the Jordan that was a, at flood stage. And it wasn't until they began to, their feet actually began to hit the water that the water started to roll back. So at the Red Sea... We were commanded to move forward, and the sages tell us that we walked forward and we got up to our nostril level before the water started to part. Now, not everybody in Israel is the same height. Whose nostrils? Maybe it was a Met's nostrils. If that's the case, I'm underwater. <laughs> I'm saying, bloop, 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 Hashem. And the merit of a, and the merit of a man's righteousness part the water, right? <laughs> the point being is that yesterday we experienced the same blessing and an anointing that was experienced on that very day, which means we were all spiritually mikvahed yesterday. So I just I just want to really hammer this home for you because. I need you to understand that we are in the wilderness now, but the slate has been washed clean. 
We have the opportunity to move forward today in righteousness, not hindered by yesterday or last week. This is the beautiful thing about Hashem is that every month, every festival season, every Shabbat, we have a renewal. We have a do-over. We're not hindered. So if today you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I struggle with this, I struggle with that, you should understand you don't struggle with that today. Amen. Unless the Yetzirah convinces you that you still have that struggle. Yes. In other words, I want you to be free today. And moving forward, today's atmosphere Freedom requires the getting on the path. Uh, to quote uh, Moshe back there, if you want to change, then change. You've got to do something to change. I said yesterday about the screens. And it's a simple thing, right? Because I was just saying that we do our best to make the slides. The slides, it requires a lot of work. Can you imagine? You know, you're taking a book like this and making slides. Okay, that's a lot of effort. And we do our very best. But the point being is that if you come habitually to this synagogue and you've been coming for a, long, for a while, a good, a good while, and you're still using the screen, something you could do very easily to improve yourself is to make a change. Get a sitter. Right. You say, I don't know how to use it. Great. We have about, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen men that will be happy to show you how to use it. And women too, for that matter. Yes. Be happy to show you how to use it. We have a tab system <laughs> that they can show you. That you can know where everything is and be able to find the blessings. And, and as you're davening, you're reading them <coughs> yourself. Yes. And you learn over time. Over time, you learn to read Hebrew. And you might only learn one sentence or, or, or maybe even one word. But how powerful is one word? If every jot and tittle is holy, how powerful is one word of Hebrew that you might learn? Right? Be motivated to, to, to move forward. So I want you to turn now to the book of Matthew chapter 13. We're getting to the uh, Omer part because the counting of the Omer is one of those things that is not, in certain circles anyway, not really talked about very much. The counting of the Omer is from the 16th of Nisan. It is not, it is not, it is not, it is not. Guarantee you 100% not from, from the Sunday after. It's the 16th of Nisan. No question. No question about it. You know how we know this? Aside from the scriptural sources, and I wrote an article, a nine-page article about this many years ago. But aside from that, Josephus tells us so. So Josephus was a historian. He was also a priest and a general of Israel. And he lived, and he, he lived in, this, in, a, in a day and age in which he worked. He literally worked in the temple in the first century. So he saw all the goings on. He was a priest. So he worked there, you know. He didn't read about it in the textbook, but he was actually there doing it all. And he tells us that the counting was from the 16th of Nisan. So pretty much that's our expert witness and the case. What else do you need besides that, right? So when the, the guy who's actually standing there at the altar and he sees, uh, he's, he sees the golden altar and he sees all, everybody's going and he says, yeah, the counting's from the 16th. It's not from, it's not from tomorrow. Okay. It's important. But it's not talked about very much, and I want to articulate to you the importance of the counting of the Omer, and what we're about to read just now, and in a second, has a, a relationship to that. So, let me get Mayam Loez ready. Let me, uh... by the way, this is a random thought by Rabbi Griffin, because <laughs> <clears throat> I open up the Mayam Loez, and you know, in another sense, he says, 
An edifice serves as a model for all other architects to emulate. The above teaching of our sages that bene le tefilot refers to the height toward which all mouths turn. I'm talking about the temple. May thus be understood in the context of another teaching as expressed in the verse. O you who hear his prayers, unto you does all flesh come. Psalm 65, 3. This verse speaks of a single prayer, tefillah, which is true in accordance with the teaching of the Talmud, that, in other words, all of our prayers are multiple prayers, but when we pray them, they become collectively one prayer because we are echad in community, right? And it says, the Talmud teaches, and I quote, the angel Memtet takes hold of all the prayers of the Jewish people and forms a crown to adorn the head of the Zadik. All right. So Matthew chapter 13, <clears throat> beginning in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a treasure that a man found stashed in a field. He stashed it again, then joyfully went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a trader seeking good pearls. When he found a very precious pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, Mayam Loez brings down a parable from the Midrash about the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, this is, he, he says this in description of a verse from Shira Shireem, but let's just read this. It says, a man inherited a tract of land that was covered over by dung. Too lazy to clear it away, he sold it for a penance. The enterprising buyer immediately set about clearing the ground and found a great treasure. He used it to build a palace and never ventured forth without, without a great number of servants and slaves that his wealth enabled him to acquire. The man who sold him the site would behold this great splendor and choke with anguish. The Israelites in Egypt were mired in slavery, condemned to labor in bricks and mortar, and they were loathsome in the eyes of their Egyptian masters. But when the Egyptians beheld them camped by the sea under the tribal banners, resembling a royal procession, they choked with anguish and regret. They realized suddenly the immense loss it was to be deprived of these multitudes. This is the meaning of the, this is the, both the parable and the meaning of the parable that is used to describe the crossing the Red Sea. So when we go and we look at, at Messiah's parable about the, the field of treasure and the pearl of great price, we learn an interesting lesson how his reader, his hearers rather, would have understood that parable contrary to the way it's understood very often in our time. In our time, we believe that Messiah is talking about the gospel message. We believe that Messiah is talking about salvation. We believe that Messiah is talking about the kingdom of heaven itself. In other words, when we read this, we're, we're saying that what he's saying is that the gospel, salvation, the kingdom of heaven is like a field that is stashed, or excuse me, a treasure that's stashed in a field and somebody will go out and sell everything they have to acquire that gospel. They'll sell everything they have to acquire that salvation. They'll sell everything they have to acquire Yeshua. But that's not the message. 
What he's saying is that the kingdom of heaven views you and me that way. We're the treasure in the field. We are the pearl of great price. We are the field of dung that simply needs to be cleared away by a great Zodic with vision. We are the one. And this is why when the enemy sees us after we are adorned in righteousness, the enemy sees us and he chokes and gnashes his teeth with anguish because he didn't realize the treasure that he had. But the kingdom of God is like the one who seeks out that treasure. And yet he, what he's saying with the Messiah is saying is I've sold everything I have to buy you back. Yeshua says, I've left everything. I've come from above the ark. By the way, we talk about, we talk about Yeshua leaving his throne. There is no th chair in heaven. There's no throne seat in heaven. The throne of God is the ark of the covenant. We know that. That's, that's a fact. The throne room of God is the holy of holies. When Yeshua, when it says that Memtet slash Yeshua left the top of the, the chest... That means he left his throne and came down and sold everything to buy that pearl of great price. Which, which kind listener is you? You're the pearl of great price. You're the one that he sought out. How do we know this? Yeshua says, uh, says that the next parable and basically gives, gives, gives clarity, but we often interpret the next parable as something completely different. But very often, rabbis taught in parables, and very, not, not too, uh, also very often, they would give multiple parables that were clues to the parable they just gave. So Yeshua says in verse 47, again, notice the again connects it to the other two parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a net that was cast into the sea and a variety of species were gathered into it. When it was full, they brought it up to the seashore. They sat down and collected the good species into the vessels, but threw the bad ones away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will go forth and separate the wicked from among the righteous, and they will cast them into the fiery furnace where there will be wailing and gnashing or grinding of teeth. So in other words, the Messiah is teaching us that, they, that, that the kingdom of heaven is like that one that is seeking out the great treasure. And in case you don't get it, what he's talking about is he casts the net and he goes through and, and keeps the good ones and throws away the bad ones. And this is connected, by the way, to the counting of the Omer. This is connected to, to Pesach itself. The rabbis write and say, what is it about Pesach and Shabbat. You know, think about it. One of my things that I've taught for years is the fact that there are, there are not seven feasts of the Lord. If you, if you go to Amazon or Google or something, you'll find all kinds of books on the seven festivals of the Lord, right? And right off the bat, the, the, the opening title of the book is an error. You know, if you're on a ship, and, and you're trying to go from point A to point B, you, have, you, you, you use a compass to plan that. And you've got to routinely check that compass. And this, this, depending on the size of the ship, how often you check that compass or whatever. But you've got to make sure you check that compass and make sure you're, you're on the right bearing. Because if you're off, if you leave Los Angeles and you're on your way to, uh, to Singapore 
and you're off by a fraction, if you're off by a little bit, instead of Singapore, you'll end up in North Korea. You say, well, I'm just off a little bit. But a little bit is a little bit now. And if you're off a little bit, it's okay to make a correction when you're just getting started. But if you're off a little bit at the end, you'll, instead of being here, you'll be way over there. You could be a thousand miles off course just by a half a degree. So we've got to make sure that we understand things. So going back to the seven festivals of Hashem, there are actually eight festivals of Hashem because of Shabbat. Everybody forgets Shabbat. Shabbat is the first festival. Shabbat is, a, is the first uh, festival that Hashem uh, initiated, the first holy day. And the rabbis are saying here that Pesach and Shabbat are intrinsically con connected. So let's see how. It says, additionally, Pesach and Shabbat both, have, give, both give us the opportunity to testify that it was Hashem, the living God, who created the universe. That's number one. When we deny the Sabbath, we deny God as creator. You need to understand that. When you deny the Sabbath, you deny God as creator. And by the way, you can't arbitrarily make the Sabbath Tuesday or Wednesday or Sunday or whatever day a week you want to do because God made it Sab Saturday, Sabbath. He made the Sabbath Sabbath. You can't take some other day and make it the Sabbath because what you're doing then, not only are you denying God, but you are now usurping him. I shall be like the most high God. I shall distinguish this day. God called that day holy, but I say this day is holy. You are now not only denying him, but you're kicking him off the throne and you're sitting there yourself as if you could. By ref it says here, uh, by refraining from work on Shabbos, we affirm that Adonai created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. I, I need you to understand this. That just by, by being Shomer on Shabbat, by guarding it, that's what that means. Just by your act of doing that, you are testifying to the validity of Scripture. By going out to eat on Shabbos, God forbid, by going to the restaurant, by mowing your lawn, by doing your laundry, by cooking or baking, you, are, you think, well, I'm, I'm under grace. No, what you're doing is you're, you're taking a, a, a marker and you're marking out Scripture. You're erasing the name of God. Rabbi, that's harsh. No, listen, this is how we grow. This is the, understanding the reality of what is, is before us is what's so important. By guarding the Sabbath, we're testifying that God is king and that his word is true. So it says here, until the Exodus, however, we were unable to articulate our belief that Adonai rules the world. He created the world, but is he actively involved in it on a day-to-day -day basis? As we have said in several places in this section, the name Pesach is a composite of two words, Pe and Sach, which means the mouth that talks. <laughs> Only after the Exodus were we free to praise Adonai openly as creator of the universe. Were it not for Pesach then, Shabbos would be only an abstraction. In other words, the Passover gives practical meaning to our daily Sabbath. Do you understand 
My wife, Rebetzina, has been very sad to see Pesach go. She enjoys Pesach, and, and I do too. The reality is, as we continue Pesach throughout the entire year, and every, Saturday, every Sabbath, we are experiencing a Pesach. That's why we men do not wear tefillin on Shabbat. Because during the week, the tefillin remind us of the Exodus. On Shabbat, we're in the Exodus. Uh, right? By the way, if you do not have a set of tefillin yet, gentlemen, before you run out and buy that new gas grill or that new 45 or that new hunting rifle or that new rod and reel or before you buy that new bass boat, you better buy a set of tefillin. And, and then if you do that, then you'll have what you need for the bass boat and the gas grill and the 45 automatic and all that kind of stuff. Problem, I, I tr know that, right? Believe it. <clears throat> so, Pesach is rightfully called a rest day only because, of, only because of it does the sacred message of Shabbat have any real meaning in the world. This is why it's so important. Now, going, going to, the, to the, the Omer, the Omer, Messiah taught that you're the pearl, you're the treasure. And he also taught that there's a sifting, right? He taught that there is a, there's a culling. You've got to cast the net, pull in the fish, and go through which ones are bad and which ones are good. Who determines that? You're not inherently bad or not inherently good. You have the opportunity to make a choice. Just like we've said many, many times before, the sign that says no one can enter unless you're circumcised to the person with the wrong heart, that, that's a barrier. To the person with the right heart, that's a, that's a, 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 a welcome sign. Let me say that again. To the person with the wrong heart, that's a barrier. To the person with the right heart, that's a, that's a welcome sign. That's a, that's a message to come in. No one can come through this point unless you're circumcised. To the person who has the right heart and wants everything that God has to offer, says, well then, let's get this over. I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. To the person who, who has the wrong heart, it says, what do you mean I can't come in? That, that sign needs to be torn down. That wall needs to be torn down. The whole place, the whole temple needs to be torn down and everything redone. The whole, all of God's law needs to be abolished because it bars me. The person with the right heart says, God's law does not bar me. God's law sets me free. It's, it all has to do with what kind of fish you are. So it says here, in answer, let us, the separating from good from evil. In answer, let us consider the significance of the Omer in the context of man's first sin and the lasting effect it left on the world. By the way, Judaism believes in original sin. If you rabbi Google that, you'll find out that you'll have people say, you'll have people say that Judaism does not believe in original sin. That is not true at all. You're about to find out. After partaking of the forbidden fruit, Adam was uh, admonished. Thorns and thistles shall sprout for you. Breshis 3.18. When Adam ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the distinction between good and evil became blurred. Figuratively, the chaff intermingled with the grain. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we just had three festivals we celebrated. We had Pesach, which is one day. 
We have the festival of first fruits, which is the Omer waving. That's the next day. And then we have the whole week, which is the festival of matzah. So I have three in one. So he goes on to say that basically the sifting of the Omer is the sifting out of the good grain and the bad grain. And this is a process that takes place in the world. And so God wants this process. And, and in fact, you can make the argument that we are part of the process. Why? Because Naomi, because of something bad, she went to, uh, uh, what's that place? Moab. Moab, thank you very much. She went to Moab, it was one blank. She went to Moab because of something bad, because of, of, of famine, right? Abraham also went to Egypt because of famine. And you know, he probably didn't want to go. He and his wife, you know, he tells us, can you imagine? He tells his wife, Sarah, she's so beautiful. He says, Sarah, God says to come to a land. Where are we going? I don't know. He says, go. Okay, I'm with you. Let's pack. So they go. They get to the land and there's a famine. And so Abraham is davening and God says, go to Egypt. And so he, he, say, you know, he goes into the tent of Sarah. She's unpacking. Sarah, is a famine. I know. It's a great land you brought us to. <laughs> And so he says, Sarah, God says, we should go to Egypt. Of course, another blessing. Let's go to Egypt. I'll pack. So they go to Egypt. Something bad. Then they get to Egypt. She's gorgeous. She's 75 and like a model. It's like my, so, so we have the, fa <laughs> pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. So. <laughs> a little bit too intimate there. I'm blushing, can you tell? So anyway. So then Pharaoh sees her and says, bring her into my harem, right? I want to marry her. So bring her into the harem. And then Abraham lies because he doesn't want to die. She's my sister. Right? And he, what he meant was like sister in the Lord. <laughs> but he should have said sister, but he said sister. <laughs> so he takes her in there, finds out she's married. So the whole point of the story is he gets cast out of Egypt with all kinds of wealth. And not just wealth, material wealth. But they also gave him slaves and servants. Guess what happened to those slaves and servants? They became converts. Though, do you understand what just happened? That was a sifting. Hashem said, I need you to go to Egypt because I've got some, I got some Omer down there. I've got some Omer down there. It's tangled up with the, th the thistles and the thorns. And he just sifted out because all those men who are coming with you are going to get circumcised. And all those women are going to become Jewesses along with you. So then Naomi, same thing, goes down to Moab. And it says here, for example, talking about the sifting out of the, of the good fish. The example is Ruth and Yitro. Mo, uh, Naomi went down, her husband dies, her son dies, now she's got these two girls, she's got two fish. Both fish kiss her, but one fish cleaves and the other fish goes, swims away. But we have, <laughs> we have, 
We have Naomi who was sifting out, and she found Ruth. What happened to Ruth? She became the mother of Mashiach. Both girls had a choice. By the way, Ruth gave birth to King David eventually through her lineage. And uh, uh, Orpha, excuse me, I just went blank. Orpha gave birth to Goliath and his brothers. So that Ruth's son eventually slew her son. All because one kissed and cleaved and the other kissed and walked away. This is the difference when people say, and hear my heart on this. This is, this is, I don't mean this to be ugly. I really mean this to be a, an opportunity to look yourself in the mirror and, and really think about which fish you are. Because there are people who say they love Israel and they kiss Israel and walk away back to their gods. Then there are other people who are not of Israel and they say they love Israel and they cling to Israel and they grab the seat seat of the, ta the tallit and they say a team of wild horses couldn't drive me back to my gods. That's the deal. That's the difference. So it says here, by separating a small quantity from the first harvest and offering it to Hashem, we symbolically undo at least partially the confusion between good and evil caused by Adam's sin. Do you understand that counting the Elmer is your effort, your part of undoing Adam's original sin? It's sifting. This is why Yeshua said to Kepha, Kepha... Satan wanted to sift you like weed, but I have prayed for you. Why? Because he was trying to make you a bad fish. But you are going to be not only a good fish, but you're going to be the one who's going to capture the other good fish. I need you to be an Omer and not a thorn. So it says, thus the elaborate sifting process that produced the barley brought as the Omer offering symbolizes the sifting of good from evil that reverses the effects of Adam's sin. He goes on to say, there could be no better time than Pesach to offer the Omer, which has the effect of undoing mankind's basic sins. The Exodus was the end of our dual enslavement, both to struggle and to eke out a living from the earth by the sweat of our brow and to the Egyptian oppressor. Once we're finally liberated from Adam's curse, we could begin to take steps to reverse his sin by bringing in the Omer offering. What does this teach us? It teaches us that by another benefit of counting the Omer is that we will be cleansed and purified, that we will begin to undo, not just in ourselves, but in the world, the sin of Adam, correcting it, right? You say, how can we do that? Mashiach did it by his, his, his spiritual sacrifice, of course. But we now have been set in the garden. We're Adam. And it's Adam and Hava. We've been set in the garden. And Mashiach says, all right, so you're purified. So your forefather, Adam, ate of the thorn." What will you do? And so our mission is to eat of the Omer. Our mission is to sift out the right Omer. And so by doing that, we are bringing down Kedushin to our homes, but we're also bringing down wealth. Because the curse was that you'll work by the sweat of your brow. 
And that means, of course, you've got to get up in the morning and go to work. We all need to work. If, you don't have a, if you're not a good, hard worker, that's not Torah. You've got to be a good, hard worker, a good, faithful worker. Your work doesn't necessarily have to be hard, but it just needs to be faithful. And if you're sitting at home and you're, you're expecting that money is going to show up on your doorstep and you're not even trying to work, you're not even trying to be faithful, then uh, you're going to end up in poverty, right? You're in poverty already. You're going to stay there. You need to be a good worker. But the point is, is that when we count the Omer, Hashem takes our effort and multiplies it. Where we should be getting one dollar, he'll give us a thousand. He multiplies it. God is a God who loves multiplication. Addition kind of bores him. Pesach and the other festivals give us an opportunity to correct other aspects of the curse. With anxiety you shall eat all the days of your life. The festivals are also a source of blessing for the Jewish farmer. As the Talmud reminds us on Rosh Hashanah 16a, on Pesach grain is blessed. On Shavuot the fruit trees are blessed. And on Sukkot we bless the abundant supply of rainfall. In other words, he's going on to say that as we celebrate the festivals, we're taking in all the Kedusha of the Shabbat and all the other festivals. And with those collective works, we are undoing the curse of the garden. Reversing the curse. How do you reverse the curse? You reverse the curse by the antidote. Because the Talmud says Hashem gave us the Yetzirah and He gave us the Torah as its antidote. Yes. To reverse the curse. How did we get to the curse? We did the curse by not following the Torah. And by the way, it was a food law. The first commandment was don't eat unkosher food. And Adam said... I, don't, I want unkosher food. And because of that, women have pain in childbirth. And death entered the world. So don't eat unkosher food. And, and I'm going to tell you something. Look. We're all, the most important thing about Torah observance is to begin. Right? We've got to begin. We're all on a certain level. Right? But we also got to be keeping in mind that we are all representatives of the king, right? So please listen to me. If you are not yet in a place, for whatever reason, you're not yet in a place where you're eating 100% kosher. I'm not talking about, there's no such thing as biblically kosher. There's only kosher, okay? No such thing as biblically kosher. That's a made-up fantasy from another group, okay? There's only kosher. If you're not eating kosher, which means that unfortunately, can't help it. It means you can't go to Chick-fil-A. It means you can't go eat at uh, Whataburger. It means you can't go eat at Mexican food place over here. It means that if you go out to eat, you've got to go to a kosher restaurant. If you buy food, it needs to be kosher certified food, including your meat, right? If you're not there yet, we understand. It's a process. It takes time. There's growing. We're here to help. We're here to answer questions. We're here to daven. We're here to do everything. But please, please, please hear me on this. Do not go eat in a non-kosher restaurant wearing your keep and seat seat. Because you are, you're bringing defilement to the name of Hashem. You're confusing people who otherwise would be looking at this because they see you eating a non, like a cheeseburger or they see you eating some kind of unkosher thing at that unkosher place and they go, wait a minute, I'm, I thought Jews ate kosher. I, I don't understand that. 
And then when they come to some place like this, God willing, and we're telling this, now they're like, yeah, but I saw he, was, he or she was eating. So just understand, if you're not there yet, that's cool. We understand. We're here to help. But understand that you can't put on the jersey of the team and then go play on the other team. Okay? Right? They would tell you that too if you had an employer. You say, hey, you went to the bar and you wore our uh, uniform shirt. Yes, I did. Okay, you're fired. Why? Because, hey, you want to do that on your own? That's good. But you don't represent my company in there. So, right? Clear out your desk. True? Right? Shem. Sometimes we hear things that we want to hear and we get excited. And other times we hear things we don't want to hear, but it's all the same. One of the names given to the Torah for matzah, the bread of affliction, alludes to the role of the exodus rectifying Adam's sin. The process of harvesting barley and preparing it to be eaten is also symbolic of the Omer's role in separating good from evil. What we can take away from that statement is that the way in which we sift good and evil in our life is following the mitzvahs. The whole point to kosher we just talked about, or the whole point to any mitzvah that we do is to separate from good and evil. We are not called, thank God, to live as monks. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be in the midst of the world and to separate from good, from evil. We're called to make that choice, whether we're listening to music or we're or having conversation or whatever we're doing, we're called to make that choice. Now, finally, from this work here, by dedicating our first efforts of the year to Hashem, we protect ourselves from the temptations of the Yetzirah in the months ahead. Thus, the Zohar in Parashat Tetzavi 183b says that if Israel properly performs the offering of the Omer on Pesach and the waving of the two loaves on Shavuot, it need have no fear of negative judgments during Rosh Hashanah. So, counting the Omer is in fact a protection. Counting the Omer... And we have a story I'm going to read here from the Midrash Rabbah Ruth. We've read it before, but it bears repeating here. The counting the Omer provides a level of protection for us. As do all the mitzvahs, by the way. Like I said a few weeks ago, you cannot, you cannot live a Torah-observant life and not experience success. You know how I know that? Because God promised it. In fact, I'm just going to make a bold statement. It is impossible to live a Torah observant life and not have success. Because God promised it. He said, when you keep my Torah, you will be successful in all your ways. Now, does that mean that we're going to have gold coins under every rock that we pick up? No. Does it mean that, that we may have a, a business venture go bad? No. But the sum total of your life is going to be a life of success. 
And the success is measured in many different ways, but you can just rest assured that when you follow the Torah, you will have a successful life. It's guaranteed. It's promised. Listen, if there's ever a guarantee, right? It's from Hashem. So in the Midrash Rabbah, Esther 10.3, it says, the Midrash notes that Haman exemplified a characteristic typical of the wicked and cites several verses indicating this. The wicked are controlled by their own hearts. So we're commanded to have good hearts. This is what makes you a good fish or a bad fish. It's your heart. But don't be deceived, by the way, because many people say, well, God knows my heart, right? We've covered that before. You can't be deceived, right? I have a gym membership. I do not believe in working out. But I do have a gym membership at the YMCA. Every time I go there, they greet me as a first-time visitor. <laughs> now, I want to be faithful. I want to believe in working out, right? Uh, every time I pass it, I think I should go there. Now, according to Jewish law, I'm a Zadok already because I'm already making teshuva. <laughs> but until I actually go in there, I don't have the heart for working out unless I actually make it a priority in my life to somehow find a way to get in there. And Bezrat Hashem, I will, right? The point, in fact, is I can't lie to myself and say, oh, I believe in working out. I really do. Oh, yeah. You know, when was the last you did it? Oh, two years ago. <laughs> but I'm there. So the point is having a good heart, but if you have a good heart, it means that you'll follow Hashem. Yes. And if you say you have a good heart, but you're not following Hashem, you're just deceiving yourself. And that's not helpful either. If I deceive myself and thinking that I was really athletic, then I would never actually get in the gym and become athletic. I just remain pathetic. I have to ask my wife, can you open this jar for me? And I curl up in a corner and cry. <laughs> Hashem, deliver me from this evil. <laughs> so it says, and, and the, the fourth, it says, 10-4, uh, hurry, take the attire and the horse. So Haman took the garment and the horse. So he's going to go get Mordecai because he's been told to parade him around the countryside. After receiving his orders from Ahasuerus, Haman went to find Mordecai. When they told Mordecai that Haman was approaching, he became extremely frightened. Now Mordecai was sitting with his disciples assembled before him. And he said to his disciples, my children, why do he call them children? Because anyone who teaches Torah to someone becomes like a spiritual father to them. He said to his disciples, my children, run and escape from here so that you are not burned by my coal. For the wicked Haman is coming to kill me. His disciples responded, if you die, we wish to die with you. And after hearing the response, Mordecai told them, if so, let us be praying that if we should be killed, we'll be killed while we were in the middle of davening. They concluded their prayers, but Haman did not yet arrive. They then sat and began to study the laws of the Omer commandment. From that 
because that day was the 16th of Nisan. And when the temple stood, they would bring the Omer offering on that day. And when Haman came toward them, he asked them, what topic are you presently studying? They replied, we're studying the command to bring the Omer offering, as it stated, when you bring a meal offering on the first year grain to Hashem, Leviticus 2.14. But there they say that Mordecai was demonstrating for them the laws of the Kitzah. These seemingly conflicting accounts are actually one and the same, for the Kitzmah was separated from the Omer offering. He said to them, what did the Omer consist of? Was it gold or silver? They replied to him, it was neither gold nor silver, nor was it even comprised of wheat. Rather, it consists of barley, the least of the field. He then inquired of them, well, what was its value? Was it, was it ten kanatar? And they said to him, even a large omer was valued only at ten manea. Haman then said to them dejectedly, come forth. Now get on the horse. For your ten manea of barley has triumphed over my 10,000 silver kanatars that I gave Ahasuerus. When Mordecai had finished praying, Haman told Mordecai, arise and don this royal attire. Mordecai responded to him and got on the horse. We learn from this mitzvah that or this, this story, rather, that Haman had paid 10,000 talents to the king for Mordecai's head and all of his people. When Mordecai thought he was lost, he began to study, of all things, the Omer offering. And when the Sutton showed up and wanted to know what was the value of the Omer, Mordecai said, we accounted him stricken of God a man of no account. We looked upon him and he was of no report. We considered him not even one to gaze upon. Yet he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And the Sutton said, your Omer has triumphed over my 10,000 talents of silver. And as we stand here on the banks of the seashore and all of our sins and all of our hurt and all of our pain is laid there covered up in the waters of Torah, let us understand that this all came about because we believed in God and we waved the Omer. And let us march forward to Shavuot, continuing to wave that Omer offering and say this Omer that we believed was nothing actually became the most important thing of all. What do we know? What do we know? We should remember to count the Omer. It's forbidden to say which day of the Omer it is until you say the Baraka. But I can just tell you that last night we completed a week. So if you haven't begun the counting, you should begin tonight.